A few weeks ago, we started our look at the book of Joel. And uh, the book of Joel is a fascinating book from the Old Testament, if you're unfamiliar with it. It's a book of prophecy. It's a small book. It's not a very large book. But when you look at the content of the book of Joel, you can see a variety of things that have long-lasting implications. And the book of Joel is quoted from and alluded to many other times in Scripture. There are references elsewhere in Scripture to the very things that are brought up in the book of Joel. And so we've been looking at these things a little piece at a time. Uh, Today we're still in that center section of Joel chapter 2. And we're going to pick up today with Joel chapter 2 starting with verse 18. And we're going to be talking about the idea of what it looks like when the Lord takes pity on our suffering. So Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 18, this is what it says in this passage of Scripture. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to spend some time right now looking at your word and meditating on the truths that you convey to us here. And Lord, we're grateful for the pity and the compassion that you showed the people of Judah in the midst of the context that they were living in at the time of Joel's writing, but also We know, Lord, that there are prophetic allusions here, that you're giving pictures of things that that are yet to be fulfilled, and so we pray that we would grasp those truths as well, but that we would also learn more about your kind and your compassionate heart toward your children. So again, Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of your word together today, and we commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. In 2002, my wife and I bought a house in 
uh, Plymouth, Pennsylvania, where we were living at the time, and we were very excited about the house. Uh, I get a kick out of uh, looking at how much it cost me for how much house we got, because here in this area, uh, that same house probably would cost three times as, as much just by virtue of of what things tend to cost around here. But at the time, I remember thinking, okay, this is the most expensive purchase I have ever made. And uh, and before we moved into the house, at the time we were thinking, all right, let's let you know. Before we had some time before we had to move in, we thought let's take care of as many details in the house and around the house that we can before we actually try and move our furniture in. So we thought let's do all the painting we have to do, let's do all the tearing out that we have to do, let's whatever carpeting we're going to put down or replace, let's do it all before we have our stuff in the house. And I thought, all right, while we're in the midst of this, because it was this time of year right now when we bought the house. Uh, I thought, while the weather is still nice, let me also fix up some of the things outside the house. So I was working one day outside the house. I was in the front yard. I was ripping out some landscaping and working on some things uh, just on the exterior of the building when two kids came zipping through my yard on their bikes, which seemed really strange to me, but my yard kind of connected with two cross streets, and they came zipping through the yard on their bikes. And in my mind, I thought, well, that's why would you zip through my yard. That seemed kind of rude, but I was like, ah, whatever. Maybe they've just done that forever, and this is the first time I'm seeing this. And then they got over to the road, and part of the road at that point wasn't very well paved. It needed to be repaved. It had lots of potholes and areas that the blacktop was breaking up. And so one of the kids, as he got out to the road, did something strange with his bike where where he was trying to turn it a particular way, but it didn't turn properly for him because the road being messed up. And I think the front tire of his bike kind of fell down into a pothole or something like that. But what ended up happening was he fell very awkwardly and very painfully, and his ankle ripped open to the point that you could see bone. It wasn't just like a, a, a skin wound. It was all the way through. And I was like, all right, this is gruesome. And he's screaming. And as I'm running to him, he's less than an acre away from me. I grabbed my phone. I called emergency services and uh, I, I got them to come. I told them where to come. I could tell it was bad. And when I got there and I looked at it, I thought, yeah, this is bad. It was one of the worst injuries I had ever seen. I, I still don't know fully how he had done it. And the friend that was with him ran back to their house, I think, to get his mom. But in the meantime, I just stayed with the kid while we waited for an ambulance to come. And he kept looking at it, and as he'd look at it, he'd go into a panic because it was a very severe injury. So I thought, all right, got to get this kid to just look at my face. So I said, just look at my face. Don't worry about that. I, I already called an ambulance. I'm, I, they told me they're coming. They'll be here any minute. So look at my face. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this kid's in excruciating pain, but he's also, his body's probably going through those defensive moments where it's, where it's like in survival mode. And so I'm just talking to him. I just look at my face. Let's just, let's not worry about that. They'll take care of that for you. You're going to be fine. Just talk to me. Tell me who you are. You know, what, what, what's been going on in your life? Things like that. Just trying to talk to him about anything but that. And every few moments, he kind of looked down at the ankle again, and so my goal was to try and block his view of his ankle so he would just look at me, and then I remember when the ambulance came, the one guy looked down at it and then looked up at the other guy, and you could see that they were both acknowledging how severe the injury was, and I saw the one EMT mouth to the other one, just the word bone. He just goes, bone, like that. You know, it's like, okay, uh, this one's a bad one. It's not just a surface wound. But I bring that up because in that moment, here you have two young guys who have just zipped through my yard that I'm trying to repair, 
and now they're doing careless things on the road that I've just moved into, and now the kid is hurt. So one side of me, a human side of me, could have looked at this and said, well, serves you right. You shouldn't be riding your bike there, and you shouldn't be riding your bike like that, right? Now that would seem pretty crummy if that was the attitude that I took. And while that kid was in, in suffering, like I'm not thinking about the fact that these kids are zipping through my yard. I'm not thinking about the fact that in that moment that they had done something careless on the road. All I cared about was getting that kid help. All I cared about was helping him through this tough spot. And I bring that up because you see this on a real... Like, we understand that emotion as human beings. But when you look at the Scripture we just read, we get to see a moment where God does that on a greater scale... For his children. We get to see God look at a group of people who have done all the wrong things. They've done all these things that he told them ahead of time, don't do this and don't do it that way. And they still did it. And yet in the midst of that, God would have per- been perfectly justified if he, if he looked at this and he said, you know what, it serves you right. And he would have been correct. Yes, it does serve you right. This is the consequence for the decisions that you made. But in this moment, you see the Lord relenting. And you see him showing pity, and you see him showing compassion to a group of people that we would admit, yeah, they don't deserve it, but isn't it nice that God showed it to them anyway? And I think we could probably all identify with that kind of emotion as men and women who reflect the image of God. And in Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 18, we see a picture of this. We see a picture of the Lord taking pity on the suffering of his people. But I want to ask a few questions for us today as we look at this. There are different ways we could look at this passage, but I want to ask it through a series of four questions today as we talk about the implications of the Lord taking pity on our suffering. And the first question that I want to ask in relation to all of this is this Where can true satisfaction be found? Where can true satisfaction be found? Look again at verse 18 down to verse 20. It says this, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you. And drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Now let's pause there for just a moment. So up to this point, as we've been looking through the book of Joel, you've probably noticed a pattern, you've probably noticed several things, but basically we've seen the people of Judah experiencing the, the consequences that come when you harden your heart, against the Lord. Up to that point, the Lord had blessed them in a bunch of ways. The Lord had blessed them with a beautiful land. The Lord had blessed them with material blessings. The Lord had blessed them with spiritual blessings. And this is how they responded to Him. Instead of revering Him, instead of living with grateful hearts toward Him, they went their own way instead. Now, even if I didn't share any more about their background, can't we all kind of identify with that Isn't every example in your life and my life where we've gone our own way an example of doing the same exact thing? Where the Lord's blessed us in countless ways and we're like, Lord, your blessings are great. And you know what else is great? My own counsel and my own wisdom and my own preferences. And so I'll do this until I hit a brick wall. And that's basically 
what the people of, jo- uh, of, of this time, the people of Judah during Joel's time were experiencing. Instead of li- living with gratefulness toward the Lord, they were going their own way. So the Lord sent a plague of locusts among them. Again, you can see in the background here of the slide, a locust. You know, it doesn't look any, any different really than a grasshopper. It's just a form of a grasshopper. But they are ruinous. And the Lord sent a plague of locusts to come and to ravage the land and to eat up all the things that the people were finding as like their source of wealth and their source of sustenance and their source of, of, of pride. And the Lord just sends these locusts and just, have, just has them eat this stuff all up. I don't know if you saw this week, uh, I posted on uh, the church Facebook page that Radar was picking up large swarms of all sorts of insects that were in parts of Ohio, parts of West Virginia, and parts of Pennsylvania. And they showed the radar images of these things, and I thought, oh boy, it's showing up on radar. What happens if we uh, actually uh, get to live out a little bit, a little taste of what we've been studying as we look at the book of Joel? Um, you know, thankfully it wasn't as ruinous, but I mean, these things, these creatures, when they swarm, they swarm big. And in this context here, you have the Lord doing this as a chastisement against the people of Judah. And they come through, these locusts, they come through and they ravage the lands. But the idea was, we talked about this some last time, the idea was the Lord wanted their hearts to be broken in a very healthy way, in a very good way, so that they would stop trusting these idols you know, the idols of their own making, the idols of their own comfort. The Lord did this. He was breaking their hearts, and He did this to drive them to the place of repentance, and His hand of discipline succeeded at this objective. He had driven them to the place of repentance. And so now, we saw this last time as we looked at the earlier sections of Joel chapter 2, you have the people of Judah finally displaying a godly sorrow over their sins, and the Lord is now assuring them that they would once again experience His blessings. That He would bless them spiritually, that He would bless them nationally, and that He would bless them materially. These are all different ways that the Lord made it abundantly clear that He was going to bless the people of Judah again. And you have these events in the lives of the, of the people of Judah giving us a prophetic foretaste of something that the Lord has in store yet to come. When you read through the prophetic literature, so we're reading through Joel right now as a group, but I'd encourage you to also look at portions of Scripture from the book of Daniel and to look at portions of Scripture from the book of Revelation and read Jesus' comments in Matthew chapter 24. And what we end up seeing is this picture that Scripture is giving us hints and direct teaching about and examples of that point our hearts to something that the Lord is going to do. There's going to come a period of time, and again, Joel refers to this throughout this book as the day of the Lord, where this earth is going to experience severe tribulation, severe judgment, severe chastisement. It's, going, it's a time that's referred to as a time of God's wrath poured out upon this earth. But on the other end of it, we will see the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign upon this earth and establish peace that only He can establish. And so here you see 
chastisement, you see judgment, you see all these things that the people of Judah are going through. But what's the Lord promising them that they will experience in their time on the other end? A season of blessing as they experience the fruit of repentance and God chooses to bless them. And again, it's a picture of what this world is ultimately going to experience uh, through the season of tribulation that's yet to come. So in the meantime, think about the spot that we're at right now. Because While I love looking at historical things, and while I love talking about prophetic things, we don't live during Joel's time, and there are things in Scripture that are yet to come that have not yet been fulfilled, but here we are right now. And one of the things that I often talk to myself about as I'm like wrestling through these things, I think, all right, I'm supposed to learn from the example of history, and I'm supposed to be looking toward a time yet coming where I trust that God is going to fulfill what He's promised. But the other part of that is, what difference does that make in my life now? How am I supposed to react to this now? As I think about the experiences of other people, and as I think about the experiences that this earth is yet to go through, how am I supposed to respond to these things now? And one of the things that I think we find when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, and when we see how this all plays out, Even as we're looking forward to the future earthly reign of Christ, I think one of the things that Scripture goes to great lengths to try and convince your heart and my heart of right now is the fact that we have the privilege to experience the Lord's reign in our hearts at present. The problem that the people of Judah at the time of Joel were experiencing was that they were trying to live distant from the Lord. They weren't welcoming Him to reign in their lives. They were going through many external Um, and visible signs of being people that were religious, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And they were trying to find their sense of peace or their sense of satisfaction in this world through very temporary and earthly things. But now you have the Lord telling the people of Judah that He will satisfy their hearts. And just as the Lord promised to satisfy the people of Judah... Our hearts can ultimately only experience ultimate satisfaction, ultimate rest, ultimate peace through Jesus Christ. That's where your sense of peace, your sense of satisfaction, that's where it's found. That's what the totality of Scripture is trying to lead our hearts toward understanding. That if we're trying to find rest in earthly things, we're not going to find it there. If we're trying to find satisfaction in earthly things, they're going to let us down. But Scripture's pointing us in the direction of the reign of Christ. And yes, He's going to reign upon this earth, but even before He reigns on this earth, we have the privilege to invite Him to reign in our hearts at present, to find our sense of satisfaction through Him. We had a very interesting experience here at the church the other night. Several of... Uh, those of us here in the, in the congregation this morning were here to experience this. But we had a leadership meeting the other night, and toward the end of our leadership meeting, right as we were finishing up, somebody wandered into the church building. And, uh, and I say wander because the, the man as he came in looked a bit confused, and he, he looked uh, like he was trying to figure out what to say and what to do. But basically, long story short, he had wandered out of a rehab where he was receiving treatment for his drug addiction. And there's not a whole lot here on the street that you can wander into unless you're going to take the risk and wander into somebody's house, and that's probably a bad idea. We had the lights on, and there's cars in the parking lot, and the doors were unlocked, and people were here in the church, so he came in here. And very openly, he started talking about different things. 
So we, we sat down with him. Uh, we started talking to him just about, you know, who he was, where he was from. And he just very openly to everybody started talking about where he had just come from and what he had been struggling with. And some of the things that had kind of led to that period of time, just openly as we sat with him in the kitchen. And uh, one of the things that he said was, here's, you know, here's the first time I ever tried drugs. Here's how often I've been using. And here's what the result has been in my life. And he said, ultimately, every time I think it's going to satisfy my pain, it just leaves me in a spot where it makes me feel worse and worse and worse and fills me with more and more regret. So I keep trying to utilize it as a tool to satisfy something inside of me, and it never works. And I keep going back to it, and that's why right now I'm in the midst of this, this rehab. And I asked him, I, I said, I don't know what your background is. I don't know, you know if, you're, if you're familiar with church life. I said, I don't know if you even think about spiritual things, but do you mind if I share with you something that speaks to that very issue? Do you mind if I share with you where satisfaction for our hearts can truly be found. And he was open to that. And so I took him to John chapter 4. Now let me show you where I, I showed him from John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, you have Jesus talking about things with a woman, uh, a Samaritan woman at a well. And in this context, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, so he's referring to the water from that physical well. So he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now think for a second about what Jesus is communicating in a portion of Scripture like this. And that's what I sat down and read through with this man that had come here to the church. Jesus is saying, there's a part of your soul that's really, really thirsty. A big part of your soul. And this matters for every single person that's walking on the face of this earth. We all have thirsty souls. And we all will try to find satisfaction for that thirst through something. And maybe you've gone through your life trying to find satisfaction for your soul through a variety of things. Maybe it's been relationships. Maybe it's also been drugs. Maybe it's been uh, career-type things. Maybe it's been prestige. Maybe it's like another possession. Or maybe you think, if I was just married, then it would be satisfied. Or if I just had kids or more kids, it would be satisfied. There's always this one thing that we think, oh, I just need one thing more, and I just need one thing more, and that will satisfy my thirst. And the person that Jesus was speaking to, the woman that he's speaking to in John chapter 4, had spent her life, her deal at that point, was she had been spending her life thinking that another man will... Uh, will satisfy the thirst of my soul. And, and the Scripture tells us that at that point she had had five husbands and now was with guy number six, but guy number six apparently didn't even want to marry her. And she kept thinking, all right, this next relationship is going to be the one that satisfies me. And the next one, and Jesus speaks into that issue and He says, listen, you're looking for satisfaction through things that are very temporary. I can satisfy the thirst of your soul. I can satisfy your deepest longing. And that message that Jesus was communicating to that woman at the well, and the message that the Lord was communicating during Joel's time is the same message that your heart and my heart needs to latch onto. Where can true satisfaction be found? Well, your heart and my heart 
will never find satisfaction until it ultimately finds it through Jesus Christ. Now going back to Joel chapter 2, he continues developing this thought as the Lord's speaking through Joel, and Joel's communicating things, and now he's, he's again segueing to thinking about the future. And so we'll ask this as a question as we just kind of let that idea of finding satisfaction for our souls through Christ. But the follow-up question to that idea is this. Is the future something we need to fear? Is the future something we need to fear? Think about what sparks fear in your mind. Think about what sparks fear in your heart. Doesn't it usually have to do with something future possibly happening? Is the future something we need to fear? Look at what it tells us in verses 21 down to verse 23. It says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. Now put yourself in the spot of the people living during Joel's time. Imagine living during this time as Joel's prophesying the, these words. The land had made, been made desolate. The land had been made bare. People were starving. Uh, the entire nation was in the midst of great grieving. But now through the words that were given to Joel, the Lord was encouraging His people to look up and to look forward. He wanted them to see something with faith or something by faith before they could see it with their eyes. The Lord was going to restore the pastures. The Lord was going to restore the trees. The Lord was going to restore the vines. And He was going to supply abundant rain again and make Judah lush and make that land fruitful like it once was. But the Lord was encouraging them to see this by faith before they saw it with their own eyes. And the Lord delights in the presence of faith in your life and in my life. He delights to see us take a break from walking by sight. He delights to show us things that our natural sight could never see, but the spiritual sight He grants us is a divine work of the Holy Spirit. Our natural inclination is to walk by sight and then to think about things related to the future with fear. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we can see things in a spiritual way as the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to see them. I love what we're told in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1 verse 16 down to verse 18, it says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So here we're told that the, that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that the Spirit of wisdom, that the Holy Spirit does that for us as we trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as He opens up our eyes to see new things, we don't need to perceive the future with fear. We can perceive the future with hope. But i got to tell you, there have been seasons of my life where I've gone through long stretches basically looking toward the future with fear. And I remember as a kid who grew up during the Cold War. So during the Cold War, we were often told about the conflict that our country, the United States, was having with the Soviet Union. And I remember, now some of you have, have young children, 
I don't know what you teach your children about geopolitics. I don't know what you teach your children about other nations. I don't know what you teach your children about war. But I remember as a child, whether my parents taught me this or not, culture was certainly telling me, oh, by the way, you can get blown up at any time. Does anyone remember that? During that era, you'd hear phrases like this, mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured destruction, meaning if the Soviet Union sets off an atomic, if they send an atomic bomb on a missile toward the United States, the United States is going to immediately retaliate and send an atomic bomb on a missile to their land. And then it's going to start off a chain reaction that all these atomic weapons are going to be flying through the air and landing and blowing up all throughout the world, and we're all going to die. Happy 10th birthday. That was like, you know, I, I remember as a child thinking about that a lot. I thought, what if that happens? What if that happens? What if, and then you'd think of, you know, things like, all right, what if one of like our leaders or one of one of their leaders bumps the button? I bump stuff all the time. I touch stuff all the time I'm supposed to leave alone. What if they get curious and think, I wonder if it works? We're all going to die. And so I would live like with a certain degree of fear in regard to the future because I thought we may all blow up. And it was on the news all the time. I still remember seeing an image on the evening news of two computer-drawn missiles hitting each other in the air over the ocean. And they're saying the president has de- is developing a plan right now that he calls Star Wars that's going to ultimately produce a missile shield in case the Soviet Union decides to send missiles toward us, and this will destroy those missiles over the ocean. I'm like, I hope that works. I hope that works. Well, I'm really glad that the bombs didn't get sent, okay? I'm really glad that that didn't happen, but I'll tell you what started to happen. When, as I got a little bit older, and as I got a little bit more acquainted with Scripture, and the description, the description that you see in Scripture of what actually happens in the future, it started to dawn on me. I was like, wait a second. A lot of details here are given that it seems very clear that the Lord has different plans than this mutually assured destruction concept that I hear talked about on the news. And I watched as my fears subsided the more I became acquainted with what Scripture actually said. And isn't that a fascinating truth that applies in lots of areas of life? There are a lot of times that we live in fear because we're relying on our own wisdom and our own sight. And yet, what does the Holy Spirit do? He opens up our eyes to be able to see things that we wouldn't naturally see. And as we read the Scripture, what tends to happen to our fear? It's replaced with faith. Our hope starts to grow. We begin to see things that the Lord's revealed to us ahead of time. And why did He reveal these things to us ahead of time? Well, so that we would know Him better and ultimately so that we could approach the future with hope, with confidence in Him because He holds the future securely in His hands. And not just in a general way, but in a specific way to you and to me. He doesn't just hold somebody else's future in His hands. He holds your future in His hands, meaning that if you know Jesus Christ, the future is not something you need to live in fear of. If you know Jesus Christ, you don't need to go through your life consumed with anxiety about what happens next, because your life is being held securely in the hands of our Lord. And this is true in both the short term and the long term. 
and going back to the time of Joel and the people of Judah and the things that the Lord was communicating through him, he was telling the people, listen, you don't need to live in fear toward the future because I'm going to restore the things that have been destroyed. And it's interesting when he's talking about this restoration because in the midst of this, he also talks about this idea of restoring years that seem lost or wasted. So I can see how the Lord would would restore things, but how does He restore years? Look at what it tells us in verses 24 and 25 about this idea of the Lord restoring years that seem lost or wasted. It says, "...the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you." So again, in these verses, you have the Lord continuing to paint this picture of future restoration for the people of Judah. The land had been destroyed, but now it was going to be restored. The crops had been eaten by the locusts, would grow again. The people would be blessed, not only with food for today, but food that would be overflowing amounts of food, the type of food that you could actually share with others because you have extra, the type of food that you could actually maybe even store up some of it for a rainy day. But the point was the Lord was going to restore all of this. And the Lord also told them that He would restore the years that seemed lost or wasted. That is such a joyful promise, isn't it? I mean, just think about that concept, restoring years that seem, that seem lost or wasted. And here's the thing, we're going to see this, this, uh, this promise ultimately accomplished when in the fullness of time, heaven and earth are recreated, never to be corrupted again. So you look at all these years. Right now, Scripture tells us that earth is in bondage to decay. It's under the curse of sin. And the day is going to come when the Lord's going to remove that curse. And the day is going to come when He's going to recreate heaven and recreate earth and unite them together, never to be corrupted with sin ever, ever again. And He's going to restore the years that seemed lost. He's going to restore the years that seemed wasted. Saw an interesting story, probably about two months ago, of a woman in her 60s who had never met her mom. She'd never met her mother. But now, in the era that we live in, it's kind of easy to track people down. Uh, sometimes you could do some you know, genetic studies that help you find different people, and, and you could also just kind of search things out a lot easier online than we once were able to do. And I guess through a series of events and a series of searches, she found that her mother was still living and decided to go meet her. And so she decided to go meet her, and they ended up hitting it off. And for years, the story was talking about the fact that these two women lived like best buds. So all those years of separation, it seemed like nothing at this point. Because now they had all this time to be able to spend together. And they were rejoicing over this, and not really even thinking about the time in the past, but they were thinking about what the Lord had blessed them with at present, what the Lord was ultimately blessing with in regard to the future. Do you know this face? Let me put the face up here on the screen. Does anyone know who that is? It's not a relative of mine or anything like that. It's not your uncle. This man passed away in 1988. He's uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers and commentators. His name is J. Vernon McGee. I've referenced him a couple times in the past, I think. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know if I have. I think I have. But I really like the guy. 
real country boy that ended up preaching out in uh, like near Los Angeles. And, uh, and he kind of kept that, that, that country twang in his voice and ended up writing a lot of books and things like that. But he said something really interesting that I want to quote for you. I just want to read it for you related to this idea of the Lord restoring years that seem wasted. And by the way, when you look over your life, don't you wish you could go back and do a few things a little different? Doesn't everybody, that, if you live long enough, don't you wish that you could go back and relive certain days and certain moments and certain actions? And you think, ah, why did I waste that? Why did I waste that time? Why did I make that decision? That was such a dumb decision. Why did I do that? And sometimes we could beat ourselves up about things that you can't go back in the past and change. But the nice thing is we have the promise that the Lord restores the years that the locusts have eaten. Look at what, let me just read to you something that, that um, J. Vernon McGee said in one of his books. He said, I don't know about you, but I can say that I am not satisfied with my life down here. I have never preached the sermon that I've wanted to preach. I wish I could do it. I've never been the husband that I really wanted to be. Neither have I been the father that I wanted to be. And by the way, I think if you asked his wife and his, his daughter, they had one daughter, if you asked him if he was a good dad and a good husband, they would have told you yes. But internally, he said, yeah, but it was always like not quite what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. And he said, I wish I could do it, but I couldn't have. He said, I've never really been the man I wanted to be. That's why I love Revelation 21.5 where it says, Behold, I make all things new. And then he says, my friend, that's what really will make heaven, heaven for a lot of us. We will be able to do the things and be the person that we have wanted to be down here. And then he says, oh, to be free from the hindrances of circumstances, of sin, of the environment, and even of heredity. What a glorious experience to be free of all of this and to be in the presence of Christ he will make all things new. He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. The Lord will make all things new. He's going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. One last thing as we finish up our look at this portion of Scripture this morning. One last question. What's the foundational truth that gets communicated here that the Lord clearly wanted the people of Judah to know, but also clearly wants us to know? What's that foundational truth? Well, we can see it in verse 26 and 27 where it says this, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So again, here we have the Lord promising the people of Judah that the day was again coming when they would eat in plenty, that the day was coming when they would be satisfied. And by the way, this is great news. When you're a starving person hearing this, you hear this differently than if your belly's full. They were starving people hearing this message. This was great news for starving people. The Lord was going to remove their sorrow. He was going to remove their shame, it says here. He was going to teach them a foundational truth that you and I need to hold on to as well, and that's this. The Lord wanted them to be confident in the fact that He is the Lord your God, and there is none else. He is the Lord your God, and there is none else. So let me say this as we finish up. 
The Lord takes pity on our suffering. He was clearly showing that to the people of Judah, but it's true for you and I as well. He takes pity on our suffering. We could be grateful for that fact, that He takes pity on our suffering. But again, in the midst of dwelling on this reminder today, let's also remember that veering from that foundational truth, so if we veer from that foundational truth, the truth that the Lord is God, the Lord alone is God, we veer from that, what we're doing is we're inviting needless suffering to return into our lives. And that's not God's desire for us. The Lord wants us to ultimately walk in His presence. So again, as we read these words from Joel's book, it's very useful and very wise for us to start asking ourselves some questions. And one of the big questions that we can ask is this. Can we say that we have no other God but the Lord? Isn't this what he's trying to drill into their hearts and into their minds? Isn't this something that we should grasp onto as well, that we have no other God but the Lord? Or maybe we could even ask it this way, tying it to the first thing we talked about earlier. Are our hearts finding the satisfaction that we seek in Jesus, or are we still convinced that we'll find it somewhere else or through someone else? Are our hearts convinced that we will be that Jesus is enough, that if you have Jesus, you already have what you truly need? If you've been searching, if this is something that you've been wrestling with, and you can identify that thirst in your soul that you've been wrestling through, if you've been searching, let me encourage you with one final statement, and that's this. Let your heart be satisfied today with the peace, with the rest and with the joy that it will only find through knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that it is to be able to take a look at a portion of Scripture like this today and to think about the things that You've revealed to us in it and to recognize that You indeed do take pity on our sorrow. You take pity on the circumstances that we put ourselves in even amazingly, Lord, when You've warned us ahead of time not to go in these directions, and yet we still seem to find our hearts inclined to listen to our own counsel and listen to our own wisdom instead of trusting that You are sufficient. Father, we're grateful that You've sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. We know, Lord, that we go through seasons of difficulty, maybe even seasons that we would refer to as tribulation. We also know, Lord, that there's going to be a a period of time where this earth goes through severe tribulation as a judgment for the sin that it's committed against you. But we also know that for those who know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that the future is something that we could look forward to because our satisfaction is in your Son. And you are our God. And we don't need to give the allegiance of our hearts to the things of this world that will just break our heart over and over and over again. Lord, again, I think of the man that, that visited us here just a few days ago, and his presence surprised us. We didn't think anyone was stopping by, and we had the opportunity to chat with him, but he would even testify, and I don't fully know where his heart is with you, so Lord, I pray that you draw him unto yourself, but he could testify in a powerful way that the things of this earth that, the, that he was trying to utilize to ease his pain or to satisfy the longing of his soul, he could testify that all it did when he gave himself over to those things 
was make him feel worse and create additional problems and keep him from the people that he loves instead of being able to be with the people that he loves. And Lord, we've all done the same thing in our own way. But Lord, when we look at portions of Scripture like this from the book of Joel, that we, would, we pray that we would see what you want us to see from them. We pray that we would understand that our hearts are going to wander and be disappointed until we find satisfaction through your Son, Jesus Christ, who brings us unto you. We're grateful, Father, that our relationship with, with you is restored through Christ. We're grateful that our sin was placed upon your Son and that we are rescued and redeemed through faith in him. And we're grateful that we could walk through each day and each week with a brand new perspective as your Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to begin seeing things the way you see them. So thank you, Lord, for these reminders from your word today. And we again thank you for taking pity on the suffering and the difficulties that we experience in the here and now. We commit ourselves to you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.